Good morning, everyone. So you'll notice there's a few differences to the room. One is there's an added camera. Um, just going to highlight Mervin over here in the corner. Um, we noticed or we realized uh, recently that um, our online following is um, growing. Uh, there are, uh, I think, about 100 people. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, like 70-odd people that watch um, our services outside of church service, whether it's through live streaming or um, whether it's on YouTube after the service is done. And so uh, we just thought we'd kind of enhance the experience, and part of that is um, what Mervin is doing here in this corner. And so um, anyway, yes, just explaining the camera. <laughs> um, the other thing is you'll notice that it's a bit chillier in this room than usual, and we want to apologize. We've been locked out of the temperature controls of, of this particular room um, in the building, and so I will um, contact um, the right people for next week, and hopefully it won't be as cold then. But um, on the upside, you guys will stay awake. Maybe. <laughs> but thank you. Anyway, so we apologize for the temperature of the room. It's really good to see you. I've been away for about a week in New Zealand. Uh, there was a, a youth program um, in the in New Zealand, and so I went over for that um, as chaplain um, for Victoria. And um, it was really nice to go and travel around the country. It's also very nice to be back here and um, see you all again. So today the uh, sermon title is Dealing with Doubt, Dealing with Doubt. And I want to start today's talk by introducing two individuals. The first individual is an Adventist pastor, or he was an Adventist pastor in the U.S. by the name of Ryan Bell. And in 2014, he had a famous year-long experiment without God. So Ryan was let go by his conference um, soon after his marriage fell apart, and he then, or in the midst of all this difficulty, he posted on a blog that he would try a year-long experiment as an atheist. Well, different news agencies picked up on the story, they interviewed him, and they followed him along this journey, and Ryan is still on this uh, journey, and to this day, he doesn't claim to be a staunch atheist, and at the same time, he doesn't subscribe to Christianity either. There's a second individual by the name of Nathan Brown. He is the editor for Signs, which is a religious publishing company. Nathan also happens to be good friends with Ryan, and in 2014, he reached out, and they had this year-long dialogue about faith. And part of that dialogue became a book that Nathan wrote entitled, Why I Try to Believe. It's a book that takes an honest look at the challenges of faith. It acknowledges the reality of doubt and gives reasons uh, why and how to believe in the midst of that doubt. Now, something that I find very significant about this book is that the foreword to Nathan Brown's book is written by Ryan Bell. So if anything in this talk resonates with you or inspires you, I highly recommend that you read Why I Try to Believe. Um, there's a copy of the book in the library in the back of the uh, room over there. If you would like a copy and you are not able to find a copy, come find me and I will get a copy in your hands. So I think in faith environments like church and small group, it's a bit uncomfortable to talk about doubt. It's a bit difficult to raise your hand or to mention, yeah, I'm not sure if I really believe in this. 
And what I want to suggest today is that faith and doubt are often connected. Actually, they are connected. In order to build faith, one must explore doubt. And I don't know if you've ever valued doubt, um, but doubting has value. There's a rabbi by the name of Lawrence Kushner, and he writes, if you are not doubting the existence of God, every two weeks you are theologically comatose. And what he's saying is that doubting at its best, it offers important critiques to faith. See, if what you believe is never challenged, how do you know that you're believing in the right thing? Because genuine and authentic faith must be interrogated. Now, many of you know that I go to a table tennis club right down the road from my house. Uh, Friday mornings, there's a group of people called the Keenagers that play doubles. Um, the group is supposed to be ages 50 and above, and I, don't, I know I don't quite make the cut, but they let me play anyway. And every now and then, someone will raise an eyebrow and ask me, aren't you a little young to be here? And my response is usually, I just, I've aged really well. <laughs> it's like Asian genes. Now, you may be wondering, is Roy hustling the retirees of Moreland City Council? <laughs> I, I feel judgment from this room. <laughs> you need to know, nobody minded when they were all beating me. Nobody minded my age when they were beating me. <laughs> I can't help it, I got better anyway. <laughs> now, yesterday, uh, yesterday morning, uh, a sweet old lady asked me, hey, so, you know, what kind of work do you do? Why are you free in the mornings? And I told her, oh, I'm a pastor and my schedules are free in the mornings but busy in the evenings and the afternoons. And she said, so you really believe in this God? And I told, I told her, yes, I believe in God. And she asked me, have you read or listened to what people say or write on the other side? And I told her, yes, I do. My faith gets tested all the time. And I bring this up because for her, unless I've considered the possibility that I could be wrong, how then could I consider the possibility of being right? There's a quote from Councils to Writers and Editors, uh, page 35, which says, Truth can afford to be fair. Truth can afford to be fair. In other words, it is faith that is tested that becomes rooted and grounded. So not only is doubting valuable, doubting is necessary. See, it's impossible to nail faith because it is inherently incomplete. Like, our believing never comes to an end because we are limited by our experience, our knowledge, and our understanding. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The author of Hebrew, uh, Hebrews begins chapter 11, verse 3 by saying, By faith we understand. Or in other words, our understanding requires faith. See, if we have unbeatable arguments and absolute proofs, we're no longer talking about faith. See, because faith is when we are given too much evidence to ignore, but not enough evidence to be certain. So then faith requires us to be humble, and humility should shape our believing. Humility should shape our faith. 
See, faith requires us to say, I can't explain everything. So then we are invited to try, to experiment, to explore, to doubt, and to, tr- and to struggle. Jesus is referred to in Scripture as the author and finisher of our faith. And I want to highlight one story where Jesus has this interaction with a man who struggles with his faith. So if you have your World Changer Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9, verses 20 to 24. Mark chapter 9, verses 20 to 24. And I'm going to narrate a little bit of the story, and then we'll also read some passages together. Mark chapter 9, verses 20 to 24. So the man, there's a man in this story that brings his possessed son to Jesus for healing. The story says that the boy, since he was a child, had been oppressed and he was thrown in fire and water. And I don't know if demon possession sounds fictitious to you. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Richard Gallagher, who is an Ivy League educated board certified psychiatrist who teaches at Columbia University and New York Medical College. And he started his training skeptical of demon possession. And um, now he is a consultant get, that gets throw, uh, thrown around the U.S., that gets flown around the U.S. Uh, to perform exorcisms. And if you're curious about the article, you can find it on CNN. But yeah, Dr. Richard Gallagher. So in this story, this man brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus. And if you look at verses 23 and 24, Jesus responds to this father's plea for help and says to the man, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He's saying, Jesus, I'm trying to believe, but I admit I struggle with doubt and need your help. And the significant part of the story for me is that Jesus required absolute faith for the healing to take place. But when the man expresses his doubt, Jesus gives the healing anyway. And the point is that Jesus values the trying. He values the trying. God values your trying. He gets that it's not easy. And encountering God is not about the amount of faith that you don't possess. It's the focus of the little faith that you do possess that counts. There are two tips that I find helpful when it comes to dealing with doubt. The first tip is shape your faith in the context of a community. If faith requires humility, then we can't build faith by ourselves. Uh, we need each other to build faith. There's a theologian by the name of Fritz Guy who says, it would be arrogant to disregard completely the thinking of others, supposing that we have nothing to learn from anyone else's past or present. Given the immensity of the challenge and the meagerness of our own intellectual resources, we need all the help we can get whenever we can find it. Faith always happens in a context. We don't get faith or belief from thin air. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and verse 25 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. The second tip that I want to share with you is prioritizing the undeniable 
over the unexplainable. There are really good reasons why people choose not to believe. There are good reasons why people don't believe in the Bible, God, Jesus, and Christianity. It may be the existence of suffering. It may be that it's difficult to build trust in the Bible because of the, uh, the apparent inconsistency between Scripture and science. It could be the disappointment that comes from people inside of the church or God not acting in a way that we expect him to. The list goes on. But there are just really good reasons why people don't believe. So the question is, how does one develop faith in the face of these reasonable challenges? There are two things that people encounter while exploring God. That which is unexplainable. Those are questions, doubts, concerns, Everybody goes through this. The second, thing is that we, uh, the second thing that we face is that which is undeniable. The undeniable is your personal experience. Your experience with truth, the principles in scripture that give you a deep quality to life, that gives you that sense of freedom. The teaching of forgiveness. The teaching of healthful living. The teaching of living in justice and mercy, and the list goes on. Then there are other personal experiences. Divine providence is when God acts in ways that are unexplainable and unexpected. Those could be miracles, answers to prayer, that sense of peace that overwhelms you when you know that you're doing what God has placed in your heart. You feel his presence. A way to cultivate faith is to prioritize the undeniable in the midst of the unexplainable. There's a story in the Gospels when Nathaniel is looking for the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. So if you have your scripture, I invite you to turn to John chapter 1, verses 45 to 49. In this story, Nathaniel is confronted by doubt. And I want to look at this interaction that he has with Philip. So it's John chapter 1, verses 45 to 49. So the story begins where Philip comes to Nathanael and he says, I found the Messiah and he's from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is often referred to in the negative. Uh, We're not really sure why, but it had a bad reputation. In the place of Jesus's town of origin, this brings a reason for doubt for Nathanael. And if you look at the text, Nathanael asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Philip could have addressed Nathaniel's objections. The taxes are lower in Nazareth than in all of Galilee. Or the fried fish in Nazareth is better than any other town around. What do you mean that, you know, what do you mean can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the list could go on. But would that conversation have convinced Nathaniel? See, we will always face that which is unexplainable when it comes to God. There are questions that are subjective in nature and difficult if not impossible to satisfy with an answer. And if you look at verse 46, notice how Philip deals with Nathaniel's objection. Nathaniel says, Nazareth is a dump. How can the Savior come from a town like that? And Philip says, come and see. Come and meet Jesus. If you look at verse 47, I love what Jesus says as he meets Nathanael. And if you're looking at the New Living Translation, it says, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. See, Jesus affirms Nathanael's intellectual honesty. 
Jesus affirms that Nathanael is not going to pretend or fake his faith. He affirms the genuine questioning of Nathanael. If you look at verse 48, Nathanael wants to know, Jesus, how do you know me? And he says, I saw you under the fig tree when Philip found you. And Nathanael comes in contact with the undeniable. If you look at verse 49, he cannot help but, but, uh, he cannot help but respond by saying, you are the son of God. Notice Nathanael doesn't bring up Nazareth. We don't know if his concerns about Nazareth are answered. Nazareth is still a crummy town. It just didn't bother him as much. Nathanael became a follower of Jesus with his question because in that moment, he had a personal encounter with Christ. If you think about the major decisions that you and I make in this life, there are always questions and concerns that we have about those decisions. Think about the relationships that you're in. How do you know if your partner or your husband or wife is the right person to commit the rest of your life to? How do you know if this person is going to treat you right in the next 5, 10, or 15 years? How do you know if there isn't going to be someone better down the road? How do you know that at your wedding reception, you're not going to lock eyes with the hostess or with the waitress and realize, oh, you're the one that I was supposed to spend the rest of my life with? Think about your career choice. How do you know that you're going to have a successful career? How do you know you're investing in the right industry? Are you going to enjoy your work for the rest of your life? How do you know you're putting your time and your resources in the right place? What about purchasing a house? How do you know that the housing market is going to be stable? How do you know that your house isn't going to bankrupt you? How do you know that the banks are going to be responsible? How do you know that negative interest isn't going to work or whatever it is? And my point is that whenever we have to decide to make major decisions, there are always questions and doubts and uncertainty. But the point is that we can move forward in the face of that uncertainty. See, we cannot separate doubt from decisions that we make. And the point that I want to make is that in many cases, the unexplainable objections we face in our daily lives are not answered before we move forward. Uncertainty is real, but it's my prayer that as you wrestle with the unexplainable, that you can encounter the undeniable. May God be with you as you journey with him.